Uh, today is week four in uh, Confessions of a Recovering Christian. It just happened to be perfect message for you guys uh, because you're about to confront a world that will inevitably kick you in the teeth sooner or later. Thank you, buddy. And uh, I, I hope to give you a message today that would give you an idea of what exactly is it that uh, the Lord has for us believers, the church, how do we be a part of our modern culture? How do we be a part? How, do, how are we to live in but not of, as the scripture says, of our modern culture? Now, uh, culture is seen through the eyes of all of your diversity. It is always seen through individual eyes. Very rarely do we find people who agree culturally on everything. I mean, we see that in America where we have probably a greater divide in modern culture than we've ever seen, or at least that we know of. And, and we also have a greater platform for all of us to share our ignorance on it as well. Have you ever noticed that you, you follow a string on social media and you can watch people as they get more and more fired up as they reply to whoever the last person was? And, and inevitably, don't you see that that person usually goes back and takes those out because they just think to themselves, I probably shouldn't have done that. Now, that would be a person who came to the recognition that, wait a minute, I might be of and in, but not in, but not of. So culture is one of those things that is seen through individual eyes. But what might happen if we were to look and say, what does God think about how we are to interact with our culture? How are we to be in, but not of? Like Bobby, uh, I've been a little shocked at the folks that have gravitated toward this teaching series because clearly uh, we've ripped a few band-aids off of boo-boos, not just mine. And there have been some folks who have thought, man, you know what, this, this, this is really speaking to me. And that's why the small group study starts in June. But thank you for joining me today for week four of Confessions of a Recovering Christian. I, I wanted to give us uh, from the outset today, because today's not one of those fire and brimstone, you know, the world's you know, going to Hades in a handbasket kind of sermons. It's, it's a teaching today that hopefully we can define what we mean by our modern culture, and, and then we might could take a look at how Jesus modeled how we're to be in but not of. So for the purposes of today's teaching, I want to refer to culture as a way of life that a group of people have adopted, their behaviors, beliefs, their values, uh, their symbols that they accept, often without thinking about them, and they're, they're passed along by communication and imitation from generation to generation, because culture is a symbolic communication. It is the flow of human energy that is accepted as the way things are. And that would cause us to wonder, I believe, what might God think of our modern culture, especially here in the U.S. where most of us live? First, this isn't one of those sermons, like I mentioned, where we're just going to go off uh, the world is, is not going down the drain, and yet it, it possibly could. But it, today's a confession that I've gotten the view of our culture wrong in so many ways. Maybe you have. Here's three just to scratch the surface on the topic today. One, for the folks in this messed up world that have been on the outside looking in at the church, I've spent decades believing that those folks just didn't get it. That if they would just get into church, they would figure it out. The, the challenge that I've had to recognize, it turns out that the church, me and you, we peeps, we followers of Jesus, we are to get out there. 
Our, our job isn't to get more people in here. Our job is to get more of us actively involved out there. That the church was designed not to be a static steeple of righteous living. The church was designed to be a voice of grace and hope to a desperate and a lost world. And if that's true, for the people that have made a lifelong habit of poor choices, they don't need one more person to point out that they've messed up. I'll promise you, they know it. They simply need to know how generous we might be in helping them off the bad choice train and onto the generous life-giving train of Jesus the Lord, not religion. And when, we, and when we point bony fingers of guilt at a world that's been left for dead beside the freeways of modern culture, God's heart, I believe, is broken by his kids as we determine that we might be better than a person of another color, socioeconomic status, education, faith system, or familial understanding. God's kingdom has no room for its citizens to carry within their hearts a bigoted belief system of superiority. There's no room. And the reason, and, and, and the reason is because God is the creator of all people, all races, all colors, all shapes, all sizes, and God loves his creation. Maybe you don't have any confessions in regard to these three statements, but I did. So I wanted to offer three elementary, but what I believe are profound ways that we're to live in, but not of, our modern culture as the church of the Lord Jesus, the son of the living God. And each of these three, and we could have selected dozens more, illustrate how simple Jesus' direction are for his followers to act within modern culture. Now, I first want to stop and say to you, having defined culture for the sake of this conversation, I think at times we have believed preachers and media lies that we live in the worst of cultures when it comes to a Judeo-Christian perspective. I want to remind you that in the time that Jesus chose to show up on this earth, he came to a barbaric culture. He came to a culture that he had to spend time telling people, don't kill your neighbor. And the reason he had to spend time having that conversation is people were doing a lot of killing their neighbor. Now, remember, Jesus came to a society and a culture whereby many of the laws, the 600-plus laws, now listen to me, not of the government, but 600-plus laws of the church, many of those laws, when you were caught breaking those laws, not only would you be ostracized from the church, oftentimes you would be put down in, in a kind of a hollow of a hole and church people would line around that hole or that pit and they would pick up stones because in the Middle East there are stones everywhere. They'd pick those rocks up and they would literally throw those rocks at those people who had broken those laws and they would hit that person with those rocks until such time as that person wasn't just dead but dead and mutilated. Like I said, Jesus came to a barbaric culture. You say, well, you know, Chuck, I'm not sure we're any better. Well, well, we'll deal with that later. But for right now, let's just take a look at what three ways might Jesus give us an answer on how we, the church, followers of Jesus, children of God, how are we to be in but not of our culture? First, I believe Jesus modeled a gracious interaction. If there's anything missing in America today is a gracious interaction. 
We live in a world that has such a binary thought that there's no possible way there could be a better way. It's him or them. It's them or him. And when I look at this and I listen to our media, I think to myself, you know what? The church is bought into this. So we get on social media and we scream at each other as well. And the world has no idea that the understanding and the difference. You know what made Jesus uniquely separate from anybody that walked the face of this earth? His gracious interaction. While Jesus could have screamed at and beat people into his kingdom, he modeled for me and you a better way. He stopped beside sycamore trees where there were thousands of people longing for his attention, and he looked up into that tree with grace-filled eyes and a grace-filled voice and invited the worst possible human in his modern culture to come down and share a meal. And that true story, while hundreds, maybe thousands of people craned their necks to get a glimpse of Jesus, as he passed along the road in Jericho, Jesus stops and he sees a fellow by the name of Zacchaeus sitting in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Join me on the screens and we look at Luke chapter 19 where you read the story where it says, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town and there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. And, Jesus, and Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy, but the people were displeased. He is gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Now, can you hear the voice of Jesus? Do you hear him looking up in the tree saying, Zacchaeus, get down here. You are so busted. I am going to take everything from you. I am going to get you back, and I'm going to wear you out. I, I didn't hear him say that, did you? I mean, I grew up hearing him say that. I, I grew up having guys teach me that's what it sounded like. But what I found in my own walk with the Lord that I believe Jesus sounded like this. Zacchaeus, dude, come on down and let's go to your house and have a meal. We're going to chat about stuff and we're going to turn the world right side up. You want to do that? And you know how Zacchaeus responded? Man, he came straight down and they went to his house and they had a meal and he decided that he'd start doing his part of turning the world right side up. You know what? Zacchaeus is a picture of that world's greatest sinner. Imagine, imagine the person in our culture that is the worst possible person in your mind. And in culture and in the New Testament, that tax collector is seen as that person. A Jewish person on the Roman payroll collecting Roman taxes and then taking whatever he wants for himself. A thief, a cheat. And he said, come on down from there. Let's go. I believe that takes a certain graciousness that is in short supply today. That Jesus, I believe, with all my heart, modeled a graciousness in how he presented himself to that culture. But I also think Jesus modeled not just a graciousness, 
I believe he modeled a certain generosity in our culture as well. I mean, before you check out on me, you think, okay, I knew we were going to get to money. I'm not talking about money at all. Jesus modeled the generosity and what we offer and give to this world in our culture without regard for what ethnicity you were. Somehow, we must, as followers of Jesus, as children of God, as his church, the bride of Christ, somehow, we must learn to love people that are not like us. We must learn to generously offer the love of the one who saved us to folks that do not agree with us, look like us, think like us, yet need a Savior just like us. Look with me in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 29, where Jesus, when asked, who is my neighbor, offered up a story, a parable, to describe who our neighbor is in this culture. He said, when Jesus replied with a story, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by him. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. And the man replied, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. If it was true in that culture, how much more is it true in our culture? A preacher came by, a deacon came by, but the one that generously gave this Jewish man was the complete opposite and a hated Samaritan, gave him his time, his ride, his food, his drink, his finances, and most importantly, gave him his compassion and generosity. If you think that we have racial tension in our society and in our culture today, you should have seen what it's like in Jesus' time. When we talk about how Jews and Samaritans hated one another, there were multiple sects like that. And they stayed at hatred with one another with such a ferocity that they killed one another with regularity. We were in a society and a culture where racial tension was significant. But maybe we look at that story again. What if it sounded in our culture like this? A white man was robbed and left for dead by the side of the road in Sugar Hill. He's been beaten near to death, and he's had all of his possessions stolen. He's been stripped of his clothing, and he's frightened, naked, and unable to do anything but lay there and die. But a white pastor walks by and thinks he's a bit too important to help, and after seeing that man's condition, walks to the other side of the road thinking, somebody else should concern themselves with this fella, I've got important work to do. But then a deacon, a white, upstanding donor of the large, predominantly white church walks by. But he too walks to the other side of the road thinking, you know what? We probably have a committee at church that cares for bums like that dude. They can come back to tend to him. So I'll text the pastor so he can tell them they need to take care of this. And so he moves on. But then a black man, maybe a business owner, an educator, sees this dude left to die, and instead of walking to the other side of the street, stops. He helps him by giving him his clothes, his food, his drink, his attention, and then carries him to help and safety, only to then care 
for the financial needs of this man. And Jesus, at the end of this parable, says that this is the guy that was the true neighbor. The one that had the most to lose culturally was the one that gave the most to simply do the right thing. Now, it's possible that I just infuriated you. It's possible that you just thought, Chuck, why did you have to use that for an example? Because I wanted you to hear it. I wanted you to know the significance of the story that Jesus is speaking. I want you to recognize that Jesus is saying to you and to me and to that group of people who's wanting to know, who is it that I'm supposed to extend this graciousness and this generosity to? And Jesus says, if they're living and breathing, you're to extend that generosity and that graciousness to, without exception. And you say, well, Chuck, listen, you have crossed the line now, Bubba. You know there are people that I am not going to do that for. Okay, now, watch me. Then you are directly and sinfully looking into the eyes of the Savior of the world saying, your admonition doesn't count for me. Now, if there's no conviction at all, I want to ask you right now, are you sure if you were to die, you'd go to heaven? Because I'll promise you, the Holy Spirit of God wants to call out the same kind of commitment that he has been wearing me out on for the last month. Jesus said, that's the guy. Ladies, men, students, graduates, you want to put something on your resume that matters when Jesus says, now that person with grace and generosity, they're leading like me. But if that wasn't enough to convince you how Jesus wants us to live within this culture, try this story on. The tax collector was indeed the most despised of the culture of that day, but right there beside the tax collector was the harlot, the prostitute. On one occasion, a woman caught in the very act of adultery is dragged before the same priest and the same church leaders that Jesus refers to in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And they had the legal right to literally stone her to death. But then Jesus shows up, and I can see him give her his outer garment to cover herself and says to these fine, pompous leaders that the one of them that is without sin should be the first one to chunk the rock to which they all dropped them, and they left. Jesus disappointed that unruly mob by offering one of life's greatest commodities. Yes, he offered graciousness. Yes, he offered generosity, but what he offered to this woman was kindness. This is something that is in great lack, and honestly, I just let me just stop and say, the reason it's called a confession is that I have spent most of my adult life, honestly, most of my life being a not very kind person. I, I got anger issues. Uh, I, I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. I, I literally can be an unkind human being. And the Lord has literally beaten me up to say, Chuck, you may be able to claim that as a part of your temperament, like that's just the way I am. But Chuck, I came and gave you a new life. I came and gave you a new heart. I came to sweep that junk out of your life, and you need to let me finish the job.
Now, I don't know if right now you're thinking me too or thank the Lord, Chuck, you finally got it. Either way, I'll take it. In John chapter 8, beginning in verse 3, it says, As he, speaking of Jesus, was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. You've heard me say before, I don't know what he wrote, but in my mind he wrote, watch this. They were trying to trap him into saying that. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And in verse 8, then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord. And by the way, that second word is what gets right, where she says, no, Lord, I need you. She's, she's making a confession herself that I need you to become my Lord. I need you to come and take over my life. I've made every bad decision I can make, and my life is in ruins because of it. So I need you to become my Lord, she says. And Jesus said, well, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. Literally, what, she say, what Jesus is saying to her is, go and do this sin no more. Once again, Jesus models a better way of life. He doesn't speak down to her. He doesn't attempt to manipulate her or lessen her. Again, two radical forces in the world and founded in what should be hatred. And Jesus breaks every cultural norm to simply offer kindness to a woman that's clearly guilty of sin. He gave her the one thing she needed most. Just like the woman at the well, he offers her a spring of life within that would leave her satisfied and contented with Jesus alone. After multiple affairs and marriages, he could have taken advantage of her, but all he did was offer her kindness. My friend, listen, even Ray Charles could see that Jesus has modeled and taught us far better a way to live. In but not of our modern culture, Jesus gave us three simple, three profound lessons to learn. Graciousness, generosity, kindness. These three are, they are virtually unknown in America today. They are almost to the point of extinction today. You say, well, Chuck, where do I fit into this? I'm so glad you asked. One, I want to ask you to join me in asking the Lord to give us enough grace to extend grace to those around us, to learn to stop at the sycamore trees that are planted all around us at our place of work, our place of worship, our place of play, and where we live. I want to ask you to offer grace to folks that are marginalized and sin-filled and possibly even disgust you. I want to ask you to ask the Lord to give you generosity that you might extend to the folks that are in need around you, especially if you might have the slightest inclination that they probably deserved what they got. And I want to ask you if you would extend kindness to folks that are in need of a Savior's kindness flowing from your heart that has been radically changed by the power of the living Jesus, the Son of God. Friends, our culture is as barbaric 
as the culture in the days of stoning and crucifixion. We just use words and laws instead of rocks and nails. For decades, the modern church has tried to scream and picket and guilt folks into the kingdom of God. But friend, this is why the American church is going backward. We got to stop that. You can't scream people into the kingdom. You can't beat people into the kingdom. You can't guilt people into the kingdom. But you can, by the model and the power of Jesus, our Savior, you, you can graciously love them into the kingdom. You can generously welcome them into the kingdom. And by kindness, have the authority and right to share how powerful the kingdom is. It was never the model of Jesus for, artists, for us to scream people into the kingdom. He built his church before we felt the need to separate into denominations and splinter groups. He built his church without need for First Baptists and Second Methodists and Third Presbyterians and Fourth Assemblies. He built the church to live in the modern culture of any generation with a graciousness, a generosity, and a kindness that is built and sustained because he is the Lord of our life and the gift that he gives us within is his spirit and it is to direct us in graciousness and generosity and in kindness to a lost and a dying world. We are his choice to share the message of graciousness and generosity and kindness because of the message and the power of Jesus our Lord. What are we to do? Welcome and receive the grace of Jesus, the generosity of Jesus, and the kindness of Jesus into our life. Commit to walking in his way to the degree that your life is overflowing with grace and generosity and kindness. And then share that overflow with a culture that is dying, literally dying, for what you have been given by Jesus himself. Grace, generosity, and kindness. Are you ready to surrender to that life today? At 9.30, four or five people said, well, Chuck, I, for me to surrender to that, I've got to have Jesus on the throne of my heart. I, I've got to receive that first. And it's as simple as you just praying in your mind with me and just saying it even silently in your heart to God right now, and you just follow with me. God, I'm calling on your name. Thank you for dying for me, for raising from the dead for me. Thank you for graciously giving me heaven for forgiving me because of your generous gift of eternal life and thank you for your kindness you've created a home for all who would believe and Jesus I thank you I want to turn my life around I want to follow you would you extend that into my, my life into my heart right now and like I did at 930 with every eye open if today you say I want to do that I want to settle that in my life I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand wherever you're at right now, if that's your desire right, right now. Amen. 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 Yeah. Man, about eight or ten people in this room. Now, there's a whole lot of folks in here. You're already a follower of Jesus. You're already a part of his church. You're already a child of God. But you'd say, you know, Chuck, like you, I haven't always lived that way. But I want to commit my life. I want to hold you accountable, Chuck, and I want you to hold me accountable. I want to ask the Lord, and Chuck, would you pray for me as, as I'll pray for you, that I, I want my life, I want the, the, the path I walk to be littered with grace and generosity and kindness, and 
Chuck, would you pray for me as I'll pray for you? And I, I, I want my life to represent that. I want when I die someday my kids to speak of me that way. And if that's the desire of your life, would you just open, hold your hand up? I want to pray for you. Would you pray for me as well? Amen. Friend, let's commit together that Jesus is the better and the best way. And let us choose to follow him. Father, we're grateful and we thank you. For the many people today who have said yes to you, I pray you give them the courage to follow you in believer's baptism. And I pray the many of us that would say we want to live our life with more gratitude and with more generosity and more kindness. God, would you remind us moment by moment before every word is spoken, when every thought is had, that you are calling us to a better way. Would you speak that truth into our life and hold us in the palm of your hand. And Lord, we love you and trust you in the name of Jesus our Lord, we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. My friend, let that Jesus go before you and make a way and make your crooked path straight. Let that Jesus go within you and bring you peace and joy, fulfillment and contentment, for he is always good and you are always loved. And let that Jesus come behind you. And like that song that Zach sang so beautifully earlier, man, when you're in the fire, let him lean over so you can hop on his back and walk you not around it and not avoid it, but through the middle of it. And man, when the world sees you in the midst of the fire, my, may you be able to say, there's another here with me, and this is my Jesus. And let him carry you through the middle of it to set you down victoriously on your two feet and wipe away your tears, kiss you on the forehead, and wrap his loving arms around you as you hear your Savior say, my child, I love you. Graduates, I am so stinking proud of y'all. You have been an extraordinary group of students. This church loves you. It'll always be home for you. You are always welcome back here. Our college ministry awaits you, and we cannot wait to serve you. I'm excited about you and your parents and the lunch we'll have at the Buford Community Center. I'm fired up for those fifth grade parents just graduating fifth grade and those kiddos getting ready to head to sixth grade for dinner later tonight. I'm so glad that you're a church that loves the next generation. And I'm so grateful for you. I can't believe you let me be your pastor. I am so stinking grateful. God bless you. Go in peace.